0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, hey, I wanted to thank everyone for um, the, the parts that everybody played and coming to Resurrection Sunday here uh, last week. It was a great Sunday. We I, we really are grateful for the people that came in that first hour. We had about eight hundred people to do that. That made enough room for the other two services. Thanks for everyone serving in the children's ministry and. And our greeters, and every, every believer's a greeter. Everybody's a, a greeter on Resurrection, Sun, Resurrection Sunday, excuse me. And, and uh, it was just a great Sunday. If you were in here, um, wow. Anyway, it was a great day of worship for us. I, um, one of the a blessed time. Thank you. And, and we had a baby then, too. I don't, know if any, I don't know how many of you know this, but a woman went into labor, like during church. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would have named the baby Grace, wouldn't you? I, doesn't that doesn't that make sense? No, not so. Well, we're starting today with a new series called "On the I'm Studying the Attributes of God." And simply, this is the greatest quest of the human soul. This is the adventure, the adventure of this life and the next life. To know God is to be alive. To be fully alive is to know God. I was looking for introductions, and I found that there is no better introduction than when Charles Haddon Spurgeon was teaching the same topic. I'll read his introduction. Forgive the long quote, but it's Charles Spurgeon. Okay. <laughs> the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the, the mightiest philosophy of which a person could ever engage in as a child of God is the name the nature, the person, the work, the doings, the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. It is the subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can grapple with, and in them we can feel a a kind of self-content. We can go along our way and think, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this matter of science, finding that our plumb line cannot find its depth, nor our eagle eye its height, we turn away with the thought that a vain man would become wise. And with our sole exclamation, we say, I am but yesterday. I know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than the thoughts of God. And while the subject humbles the mind, it expands it as well. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation in the great subject of the deity. And while humbling and expanding, this subject is immensely consoling. Would you like to lose your sorrow? Would you like to drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea, be lost in his immensity, and you will come forth from that couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can comfort the soul, so calm the swelling surges of sorrow and grief, so as to speak peace to the winds of trials, as to the devout musings upon the subject of the Godhead. And it is to that subject that I invite you this morning. I wish Charles Spurgeon could do this series for us. That it's a great introduction. Once a person grasps that life is to know God, then life and its sorrows find their way into their proper place. If a person does not understand this, or a person does not believe that their purpose in life is to know God, then there is a wasting of the soul, a disease, wasting of the soul. And some great scholars uh, over the years have, have put different names to this. Camus said that we suffer from absurdism, that life has no meaning. Sartre called it nausea. There is an expression, it's called Marie Antoinette fever. The Marie Antoinette fever. Because of her overstimulation, she said, I cannot taste. She lost her taste because she overexposed herself to taste. And there's, the, there's a lostness. And there, there are men and women, sages of every soul, that have said this, that man's soul is meant for much, much more, and it can't be in, enjoyed in the temporal things. The restless soul syndrome is, concludes that life is either a problem or a bore, a problem or a bore. And yet... The soul of the Christian, the one that's aware, should not be infected by absurdism or Antoinette's fever because we know, we know what the soul is meant for. St. Augustine said it, right? Thou hast made our soul for thee, and it is restless until it finds you. A restless soul until it finds rest in you. And so the point in the summary is this, that our souls are eternal and there's nothing temporal that can satisfy it. And so to know God, to know God is, is is the ideal or the dream of our imagination. It can hold our entire allegiance. There's no goal higher or purposeful or compelling than that of knowing God. To know God. One writer put it, Our losses and our crosses cannot conquer the man who knows God because his gain is so much greater than his loss. There's a ballast that happens to us when we know God. And in the storms of life, somehow, when we're turned over and upside down, we find ourselves righted somehow. J.R. Packard, in his book called Knowing God, said, There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with the full assurance of this, to know God and know that God knows you. Could I introduce you to the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God of the universe? His name is Yahweh. Here's what it means.
1: For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We are going to look at the second key word here, Lord written in all capital letters. This is the personal name of Israel's God. We first learn the meaning of this name in the story of Moses and the burning bush in the book of Exodus chapter three. God appears to Moses and he commissions him to liberate the Israelites from slavery. And so Moses wonders, what if people ask the name of the God who has sent me? And so God responds, tell them Ehyeh has sent me to you. Now that Hebrew word Ehyeh means I will be. In other words, God's name means that He is the one who is and who will be. God's existence doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. This God simply is. But. It will sound kind of strange for Moses to go say to the Israelites, I will be has sent me to you. Only God can say, I will be. So, in the next sentence, God tells Moses the version he should say aloud, Yahweh, the God of our ancestors, he has sent me to you. Now, that word Yahweh is the ancient Hebrew form of the verb, he will be. And this is the personal name of the God of Israel. It appears over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. The word Lord in all capital letters is an indication of the divine name. Don't confuse it with the word Lord in your English translations that is not in all capital letters. That is the actual Hebrew word Adon, which just means Lord or Master. This word can refer to people like kings or the master of a servant, even a shepherd over his sheep. And sometimes biblical authors will use this word to refer to God, like in the phrases the Lord of all the earth or the Lord of Lords. But behind all of these words, Jehovah, Lord, Adonai, stands the original divine name of the God of Israel. It refers to the one who was, who is, and who forever will be.
0: That's what his name means, Yahweh. Now, with that in mind, with, it, with the understanding, when you see in the Bible uh, throughout the Older Testament, the name, the letters L-O-R-D in all capital letters, it's not saying Lord, it's saying Yahweh. Okay. Now let's look at the first two commandments, now that we know what, what His name is and what, how it's being written. And God spoke all these words. This is the Exodus version of it. It says, "I am, right? I am Jehovah. I'm Jehovah or Yahweh. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. First commandment: "You shall have no other gods before me." Second commandment. You shall not make for yourselves image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to worship uh, to, to them or worship them for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Yahweh, your God, is a jealous God. The thesis of the Bible, the very purpose of the Bible, the reason it's written is to hold up this name, this proper name of God, Yahweh, so that we know who He is and what He's like, and then know what He's not to turn away from idols, because the idols will have power over us. They will enslave us. So the purpose of the first two commandments is to reject the idols in our lives and turn only to Yahweh. That's where freedom is while we're serving Him. The Bible says that we are designed and built to worship. We are designed and built to worship. That's the nature of our souls. And by the, when we say worship, by the way, it means you will serve. Whatever you worship, you serve. There, there's an obligation. There is things to do. That's how, in some respects, you express your worship. And so when Bob Dylan sings the song from way back, you've you got to serve somebody. You may serve the devil or you might serve the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. That's true because you've got to worship somebody. You can serve Yah- or you can worship Yahweh or you can worship something else, but you're going to worship something because that's the way we're designed and that's the way we were built. So when it says, you shall have no other gods before me, we need to look at that as the deeper motivation for even sin. So many times we look at uh, the things that we regret and these crimes against God and we look at them in, I guess, in a shallow way as the deeds we have done and if you look at these, uh, these commandments, you'll see, no, no, no. More than likely, your regrets, your expressions of sin are actually service activities towards the worship of a false god or an idol. Okay? There's a deeper thing that's motivating you to do something that you would rather not do. Because it is the nature of your soul to worship. And, it's, and the expression of this worf, worship is some kind of servitude, and it, it's going to find its way somewhere. Let me just say again, um, the the, the way we're made, the the nature of us will find a way. It will always find a way. Your body craves food. It craves, well, it's supposed to crave good food, but at least mine doesn't. So anyway, so it craves good food. If you don't feed it, it will find bad food. If it doesn't have good food or bad food, your body will eat sand. Because it, wa- it needs it. Okay, so the nature will find a way is the point of that illustration. Your soul's nature will find a way. It's going to worship something. The commandments are you should worship Yahweh. He set you free. The worship and the service of Yahweh is the only thing that can set you free to become more than you can imagine the way you were meant to be. Anything else is just you're going to worship sands. worship some dust. So watch, okay? If you do something, let's say you you do something you regret. And if you look at it in the context of quite probably it's an expression of worship to a false god, uh, look at approval, right? You worship approval. You want everyone to like you. You want people, you know, to look forward to you, you know, being in the room or whatever. And then you find yourself serving that, right? serving that need to be approved, need to be liked, you're going to find yourself committing acts that you never thought you would so that you would be approved. So it's not the action itself, but my point is, it's the action is an expression of maybe some kind of service to to an idol, to an idol that you serve. If you look at idol, if you you wanted to define the word idol, uh, and, and by the way, don't be thinking in the context of like forming or molding something, right? carving something out of wood. It's the idea of the idol of the heart. Augustine said an idol was a good thing that you've turned into an ultimate thing, a good thing that you've blown up and turned into an ultimate thing, some kind of passion or a purpose or even a person, whatever it might be. It starts, it always starts off serving you. You get what you want and then you serve it. It becomes the master always starts off with you serving. It's the classic uh, pushing drugs, right, heroin or whatever. It's like the first one's free, right? We're going to get you hooked on this, and then we'll own you later. That's how idols work, and so you start with a good thing like, you know, a field of study or marriage, parenting, some uh, business success. All those things are good, those things God would enjoy, and then you idolize those things, they serve you in the context early on, and then they own you. And then next thing you know, you, what happens, here's, a, here's how I look at it sometimes to help identify an idol. You, you tie your identity to it. That's that's how you're now defining yourself. And so it's a good thing to be involved in some discipline like the arts. You want to be a good artist, that's good. And then it becomes this this other thing. And then you need to be known as a good artist. It's good to be good at business, and then you get good at business, and then you are known for that, and now you can't let it go because it's holding on to you. You see, it's a good thing that becomes, you know, an ultimate thing, and then you have to serve it. That's how you're expressing your worship towards it. Marriage and family, friendships can do this. Uh, You could, what I'd like to show you is, that sometimes you can see that it's an idol when something is lost, taken away, or threatened. Let me, let me just give you two, like a comparative study here. You have, you have two women that are mothers, and it's, it's a good thing to be a mother, right? One, and they're, they're, they're working the same amount of time, same amount of energy put in, putting into being a, a mother. One person has made this into an idol, and one person is just doing their due diligence. And the person that's made it into an idol, what did we say? Now she's identifying herself as a mother. I am a mother, and now this person is going to be easily threatened when one of the children make a mistake, right? and because that's a good mother, has good children, and so their goofing around is an ex- reflecting on her, and she's shame filled. And while this other mother might be grieving towards that, this one is embarrassed and threatened, and that kid better get in line because that's who I am. You see, there's an overreaction because the idol isn't, isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. I'll pay more now. And then even if something happens like the natural phases of life, the children leave the house. This person over here, this mother over here would naturally just grieve and feel a sense of loneliness and missing. sort. This person, I am a mother and there are no children here. And so who am There's a full-blown identity issue. And how do they deal with that? It has to be dealt with by calling it what it is. It's an idol. You've been serving it. You made it your identity. The Bible says this. The Bible says it is the nature of the human soul to worship an idol. If you know yourself, you should know your propensities and proclivities towards certain idols. Usually they come with the bent you'll have them your whole life if you don't think you have an idol or you don't know what your idols are then you don't know yourself the Bible says we're going to serve idols and they're going to ensnare us and entrap us and we will be slaves to them and God says I'm Yahweh I set you free from Egypt and that's just not a historical then it's a metaphor for your soul the when the Bible says, you know, "Make no idols out of heaven above, or earth below, or the water beneath," it's talking about the millions of possibilities and potentials for idol making. There are so many opportunities out there for us, and and it, again, it, there there are good things that become ultimate things we attach our identity to. It serves us; we serve it. And then it crushes us. When I, uh, I had an idol early in my career here, I was a workaholic. I mean, I just, I worked all the time. I was, I want to be known for being productive. I want to be, I want to have... Right, Uh, the reputation of being quite possibly the hardest worker on the team. That's that's where I get my attention. That's where I'm going to get my value. That's the way I'm going to keep score. It started off as a good work ethic and then it became so much more. I I had a review from some of the elders one time and they said, you know, Matt, next year doesn't have to be better than this year and you don't have to work harder next year than this year. And I thought, you Philistines, how did you get in charge of this place? (laughs) I honestly thought they were threatening a core value system to me, and it rocked me. Our former senior pastor took my calendar and said, I want half of this gone the next time we meet. How did it all get on that calendar? Because I was serving my God, small g. You, You have to look at lifestyles and sinful behaviors in the context of idol worship. If you know what what a codependent relationship is, I think many of us do when it's in someone else's life. Anyway, uh, (laughs) right? (laughs) You do. Okay, now you get it. Okay, thank you. You do understand then. So look at it as not, you know, just maybe psychologically dysfunctional people, but look at it in the understanding of idolatry. So you have one person that has identified themselves as the broken person, right? This is who I am. I'm the problem. I and, and I need help. This is where, this is how I get people's attention of being the broken person. This is how I get people's love is by needing the help and 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 playing this this role here. And then you have right the messiah complex guy or gal that says, "Oh, I'm the people fix her." I'm the one who helps and rescues. I'm the person that always comes in. This is how I get my attention from people. This is how I get love from other people. And so they get and they meet each other and it's like, wow, look at us just feeding off of each other's idolatry. It's not what they're doing. What's motivating them? First two commandments would say you have idols and they're enslaving you. They have power over you. And God says, I am Yahweh. I set you free. So there's those kinds of idols, but there's another kind of idol, a different kind, and it's probably the most common one in this room. Here's how I found out about it. I was asked to do, there was a, this was a number of years ago, and there was this uh, fundraising event, and they asked me to do the closing prayer for it. It was a it was a very prestigious event. There was a limited number of people. It was a dinner, and we were all dressed up, and they brought in a visiting, you know, brought in a theologian from outside, a, a famous national, actually international speaker, and I didn't realize what I had uh, agreed to. I just wanted a free meal, honestly, and, and I really like this man. And so the, when it started off, I mean, the opening prayer, right? So I'm doing the closing one. The opening prayer, this guy's reading it, and it takes it took, I don't know, like five minutes for him to read this prayer and had all these big words in it. I'm thinking, I hope God can keep up with this guy's vocabulary. And then, and then the introduction of the speaker. It was, they read his, his syllabus. And that took, like, when is this guy going to ever speak? And I thought to myself, oh, goodness, this is not going to go well because I didn't write out my prayer. I kind of like my prayer to be like, in the moment, you know, and reflect what's already, what's, what's happening to us, so... I thought, well, this will be a disappointing conclusion anyway. But when the speaker spoke, he was, he was, he was, he was awe-inspiring. And he, he talked to us about, about our views of God. And he was cutting especially deep, at least in my life anyway. I felt like he did a, an excellent job of, of projecting who Yahweh is and how we are worshiping something other than that. I felt as though I had been found out. I felt like he uh, was undressing me right there. And he sat down, and then it was my turn to do the closing prayer. And it was during that closing prayer that the Spirit of God's conviction came, not over me, but more like upon me. And I realized that in, while I was speaking, I, I realized I was confessing to God that I had attributed the things to him that I, that I just borrowed from like, you know, my definition of what a father is, and that you know, he was maybe compulsive in his anger and, and flippant with his expressions of love, and conditional in his acceptance of me. And then I realized, oh, it's so much worse than that." And I prayed, I have called that God Yahweh. I wasn't just worshiping an idol. I was calling him Yahweh. It would have been better if I had just said, I worship Zeus. You never know when he's going to zap you. He's so compulsive sometimes. And, I mean, I worship Zeus, and it was a a better definition of Zeus. But, no, I attributed these attributes of Zeus, and I was calling him Yahweh. And, And then I found myself envisioning with my imagination speaking to Yahweh with the with this confession of the grief that I had been causing him all these years by projecting these slanderous attributes on, onto his character and how much it must have hurt his soul to have me think of him in those ways. And when I realized the, like the damage or injury to him, to God, Yahweh, for the way I'd been thinking about him and speaking to him and, and living my life around that definition, I stopped talking and just started crying. So I'm up there just weeping. I'm not in the moment anymore. I'm completely lost in the moment. And I forgot where I was just having this thing, you know. And, and, then, I, and then I looked up, and everybody was looking at me, and they were scared, <laughs> you know. They were. And that is the last time a Presbyterians ever asked me to pray. <laughs> that's, how you, that's how you get out of prayers for Presbyterians. You just kind of lose it up there. They'll leave you alone after that. I think the worst idolatry is this. When we think about things about God that are lies, and we call that God Yahweh. Because what had happened is I had, I had seen some things. The, def, the word father is a powerful word. And it's very easy to bring that into our, our definition of God the father. And he's going to look more like Zeus than he is Yahweh. But when I had a better grasp of understanding the unconditional love of God, when I understood that my righteousness was not earned but imputed, it was inherited, I just was given that on the resurrection. When I realized that God couldn't love me less, he couldn't possibly love me less or more, I realized I needed to change the purpose of life, that my life quest would be to know God, to know Yahweh, to find out who I think I'm worshiping and get rid of that idol and serve the only true God. When we're left to ourselves, we're gonna take the definitions of God and we're gonna either put them in some image of ourselves, or we're going to try to manage that definition of God so that we can comprehend it. We're assaulted with the awesomeness of God, the all-powerful God, the all-knowing God, and the holiness of God. And in our, maybe in our fear, we try to reduce that down and make it manageable. And we put God in a box. We try to tame Him. We put Him in our pockets so that He'll do what He's told. He'll serve us and make us happy. And if that weren't the worst we could do, to think that God would serve us to make us happy, we call him Yahweh. That's as bad as it can get. You look at a difficult passage in the Bible. You go, wow. (laughs) That's not what I would do. Okay, so... And that passage is written there so that you might know Yahweh, that that would cause you to worship him in a different way or cause you to want to know him deeper. That would cause you want to argue with him so that you might grow in a greater complexity of who he might be so that you might serve him. You could do that, but we don't. We say, I don't like that passage. I'll just turn the page. Or I'm just going to define it in a way that's clearly not what the author intended so that I can keep God in a place where I'd expect him to be. Elizabeth Elliott's an uh, old saint that has passed on, and she is an amazing woman. She uh, wrote a, best, a lot of best-selling books. She wrote one novel. Uh, it's called No Graven Image. And it's about a 25-year-old girl that was a little bit naive and, and a woman, I'm sorry, not a girl, a 25-year-old woman that went down to Ecuador to uh, be a missionary. And so she went there to translate the Bible into their native tongue. Worked there long and hard, not a lot was happening couldn't get much done, and then in, because of some circumstances, she helped birth a child that was breached, and the, and the tribe celebrated that, and she, she earned some respect, and she made good friends with uh, one of the men in the tribe and his family, and it turns out that he was the only man in the whole world that knew English, Spanish, and the native language of that tribe. And so they started working on a translation so that that tribe might know Yahweh, the only true God. And the man became ill. And the missionary, Margaret, went to help him, and she gave him a a shot of some kind of penicillin, and it was the wrong medicine. And he died because she killed him. And that's how the book ends. When she wrote that book, she... Received bundles of hate mail and essentially that said this I will I here's one quote I could never believe in a God who would mistreat a devout missionary like that here's the problem it was a true story there is a God that would mistreat a devout missionary like that and his name is Yahweh Elizabeth Elliot would say, do you have a God of your own making? Is he on a leash? Does he jump through your hoops when you tell him to? And I would say, is it worse than that? Do you call him Yahweh? Or do you have a God that's so wise that you'll never figure out what he thinks? That he's so powerful and sovereign that he won't be checking in with you when he does his, his actions. Do you have a God that's so wise that he would leave John the Baptist in prison so to be beheaded and yet set Peter free so that he could live on? This is what the Bible says. This is the idea. This is the first two commandments. You let Yahweh be Yahweh and turn away from idols. Let Yahweh be Yahweh and destroy those idols in your life. Here's your life goal in this life and in the next, that you know God, Yahweh God, the one true creator God. That's the quest. That's the purpose of living. How do you do that? How do we know God? Two words, seek him. Some of you know this passage in Jeremiah. Uh, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh. There it is, all capital letters, right? I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and, and a future. You will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Here it is. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you declares Jehovah Yahweh and you will bring and, and I will bring back you back from cap- captivity when you seek me with all of your heart you will find me declares Yahweh what does that mean it means to be meditating on the Lord and I know just, just that doesn't help much, right? Uh, meditation is one of these words. It's a church word. It's a scary word. Monks meditate. Holy people meditate. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, anybody? I can't meditate for more than three minutes. If, that, if I get a text, the meditation is gone. I'm buzzed. I'm just. I'm out of here. So, But I would, here, my point is, is that I think we all meditate. I know we all meditate, and we're all pretty good at meditating. We meditate regularly. Here's how we meditate regularly. Do you worry? Yeah, you're pretty good at it, aren't you? Worrying is meditating. Worrying is negative meditating. Worrying is when you're fixated on some kind of thought. It's, 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 it's arguing with some topic in your head. You're just doing it wrong. You're, you're meditating backwards. So to meditate on, on the Lord is a positive worrying. You're, you're, you're positively thinking about the, by Yahweh and the difference He would make in your life. It's, it's thinking about him like you think, like you would worry. I mean, you know, what's the saying? Uh, I was up for three hours last night, but I caught up on a lot of worrying, you know. So I was up for three hours last night, but I was meditating instead positively on the nature of Yahweh, the only true God. And the way, the, kind of the way you do that is you, uh, so many of us know about God, and that's not what we're talking about. Meditation is when you know something about God and then you bring it to God. You, you are like before God talking about that attribute or those, those things about God. It was, I, I use my prayer, my Presbyterian prayer as an example for that purpose. It's when I learn some things about the nature of God and then I envision myself in the presence of God and, and saying the words to him, it's what I knew about him and now it's before him and it changes everything, doesn't it? We're calling to mind these, these thoughts and, and stirring them in our minds and we're dwelling upon them. We're arguing with ourselves, our belief systems, our doubts. We're in this running conversation that won't be reconciled until we get it to that. So that's one way of looking at meditation. Another way of looking at meditation is having a fascinating love affection towards God. There are many, so, so many of the songs we sang today are affectionate love songs towards God. I'm going to read you a song I was listening to driving around this week, and I, I thought that's, that's what meditation is. That's seeking God with all your heart. Listen to this love song, but now with the concept of this is meditation, and then think about singing this, thinking this song to Yahweh so that you would be seeking him with all your heart. I love this song. It's called The Very Thought of You. It's uh, towards her lover. She says, the very thought of you, just the very thought of you, and I forget to do the very ordinary things that everyone ought to do. I'm living like some kind of daydream, but I'm happy as a king. And foolish though it may seem to me, it's everything, the very thought of you. The mere idea of you, the longing here for you, you'll never know how slow the moments go until I'm near to you. I see your face on every flower. I see your eyes in the stars above. Can't you, can't you sing that, say that to the Lord? I, I see you in the flowers. I just, I, it's just the thought of you. Just a very thought of you. You are my love. Meditation is singing a love song to the great God, Yah- Yahweh. It's a positive worrying for a purpose so that you might not know him. So here's what we're going to do. With that in mind, with the definition of, of meditation, it, it, now in something that we can do well, what we'll do is in our weeks to come, we'll focus on an attribute of God. And then that week, we will bring the, what we know about God to the presence of God and worry positively in that direction. We will argue about his holiness. We will meditate on his holiness. We will sing about his holiness. And, and we'll do that for a, a you know, for the week. It'll be daydreaming about the nature of God. It, meditation on God is being distracted by his love, by his wonder, by his awesomeness. You'll forget what you were saying. Let me close with this thought that you need to understand. God wants you to know him. And that alone is profound. God wants you to know him, the almighty creator of all things, the Lord of Lord, the one who's all all the nations pass underneath him, and they're just a vapor. And he has written a book, and the purpose of the book is so that you might read that, so that you might enjoy him. That book, the Bible, is a love letter where he opens his heart and says, come to me. Let's be friends. We should do life together. He wants to know us. I took a class three summers ago. Um, It was a graduate study class on the book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, the passage we looked at today in Exodus, it's almost identical. It's the Ten Commandments. And our lecturer, who's an authority on this book, spent an entire day on this word, Yahweh. And when, the reason I think he's so good at what he does is not because he tells us what, you know, the word means, but the difference it makes. And this is where everyone, that's where people miss the point. That's where his genius was. What was the point? Yahweh, my name is Yahweh. He tells Israel his name. And, he, and, and, and our response, appropriately, because of his transcendence, is to think he's, he's so transcendent, you know? He's so holy. He's so other. How could human lips say this name? And because of their appreciation for his greatness, the Jews responded ultimately in tradition, not in the way God wanted it, but in tradition where they wouldn't say his name. They couldn't say Yahweh. And the, the, this professor was saying... That's why he told them his name so that they would call him by that name. So he was like, you are the people. I'm gonna tell you and only you what my real name is. And then you're going to serve that name, that, that God. And then other people are gonna say, what God did you serve? And you're gonna say, Yahweh, you will be the, pr- I'm gonna give you the privilege of this intimate relationship. I wanna have a relationship with you. I'm gonna tell you my name. And they wouldn't say it. Look, watch, just so you get this, what's happening here? Like, if I want, what if I just said, "Look, I want to have a relationship with you. I really do. I want, I want you to know me, and I want to know you." And you know what? Look, my name is Matthew, uh, but my friends call me Matt. And then you, because it's like for some re- reverence or something, you say, "Okay." Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, what? First of all, I just told you, no one calls me Matthew. And my friends call me Matt, so you can call me that. Okay. <laughs> See how it's an insult to my desire for you to know me? It's worse because the relationship we're talking about now is the relationship of a father to his child. And God comes to us and says, You can call me father. And we say, er, and, and if you look at the progression of this invitation to call him Father, it ends in the New Testament where he says, I will give you my spirit that will call out to me Abba, which is not Father, it's Daddy. Abba, Dad. You can call me Dad, and we say, okay. Everything he's trying to do. here's the, <laughs> here, this, is, this is really funny in some respect. It's funny in the demented state of the human soul that he gives us his name and we make that name into an idol. We made a good thing and we made it an ultimate thing, and now we can't even say it. And God's going, oh, what? Here's the best part of the passage I am Yahweh, your God, and I am a jealous God. I, Yahweh, am a jealous God. And I know it's pretty easy for people to think that's a bad thing, but you're missing the point again. There's some good, there's some bad jealousy, absolutely. But what, what's the, what is, what is so amazing about this? God is saying, Yahweh is saying this, you belong to me. And I, and I'll love you like nothing else can. And I, it. Crushes me to see you run to the arms of an idol that you will be enslaved to that will destroy you. You could be ravished by me, and I will make you more than you could imagine—the way you were meant to be—and and we could have this great communal relationship. So, so please, please, I want a covenant relationship where where I own you, and I, I release my. My, my knowledge about me to you, and I will make you like Christ in all of life, and I want to spend eternity with you. Yeah, I don't want you shopping around. I am Yahweh, and there are no other gods before me. Would you, could you, choose only to serve that God I'm going to ask you, would you like to join me as we go through these weeks to find out more about the attributes of Yahweh so that we might enjoy him and cut ourselves free from the slavery and the servitude of idol worship? You want to go? Let's go. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we're grateful that we can speak to God, the Father, through you. And God, it crushes uh, our souls to think about the things that we have thought about you, and, and, we, th- and we, were th- we thought it was Yahweh that we were serving, and we were serving some expression of our Father, or the opposite of that, or, or what we wanted you to be, and that was not just an idol, it was slander. Lord, I'd ask that your spirit would call to our spirit, And we would respond appropriately to your desire to be our friend, to love us, that your eye is always upon us, that your attention is undistracted from us. There's no moment where your care falters for us, and we would receive that. You desire to know us, Lord, I'd ask that we would desire to know you. Teach us how to meditate on your wonder. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.